HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Visit a farm. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Get out of the city and explore while also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. All right. Thank you for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza here in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You, of course, are tuned in to the Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks, and that <laughs> is the sound of me opening a can of Ironbound Hard Cider, um, made very close to here out in New Jersey. We are joined in studio by two of the Northeast foremost cider personalities, <laughs> experts, what? thinkers, thought leaders, um, <clears throat> Charles Rosen of Ironbone Cider. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Aaron. And Sabine Haresh Dekian of Wassail, um, co-owner of Wassail, longtime friend of mine personally and the network. Sabine, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, what's the fancy pants way to say your last name? Sabine Rechtakian. See guys, it's just better when they do it. <laughs> I tried. I tried. I had that like cool cider opening moment, you know, so yeah. I was really, I was really going for that. Um, well today we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what's happening, uh, in the world of ciders here in the, in the Northeast and more broadly, uh, this is an issue we've covered on the show before we're getting kind of geared up for New York city cider week. Um, and I want to start with you, Charles, because you have like kind of a wonky background entree point to cider. So give us kind of the cliff notes version of how you got into the chair today. Uh, sure. Well, um, the job of getting it down to a cliff notes version, uh, seems to escape me, but I'll, I'll do my best, <laughs> um, to try to make a very long story short, uh, about five years ago, I started a business uh, focused on workforce development and regenerative agriculture, uh, 
primarily based in Newark, New Jersey. And so the majority of my employees um, were formerly incarcerated men and women and other members of what we consider the the most underserved members of the community. Um, And uh, we were in business for a couple of years, and we came to learn that cider was the very first industry in Newark, New Jersey. Um, George Washington loved Newark cider. And uh, in very typical Jersey fashion, um, it was known as the champagne of ciders. And um, so uh, Jerseyites, as they tend to do, took advantage of that and actually was selling it on the black market as champagne. And I've got an article from Harper's in, uh, I think it's 1862, talking about it as champagne, but spelled S-H-A-M, like it was a sham. And I was like, wow, that's exactly the perfect business for us to be in. Um, And so uh, we decided to launch a cider because our whole business model was is based on the notion that if we have a viable enough for-profit revenue stream, uh, we can continue to support our workforce development program and our our approach to agriculture. And so cider being the fastest growing segment of the category at the time, uh, or still being uh, the fastest growing segment of the category, we thought this would be a perfect area to launch. Um, uh, but then, in very also typical Jersey fashion, there was more regulations than we could ever imagine. And uh, one of the things to be a cidery in New Jersey, you have to have a winery license. And to have to have a winery license, you have to be engaged in commercial agriculture. Uh, so we ended up buying a farm out in Hunterdon County, which is a little less than an hour from the city. And... Um, and so that's where our orchards are, and we have about 40 acres of mushrooms in our woodland area. And uh, although it was unintentional uh, to have the farm out of Newark, in the end it was kind of the most important piece of our business in that it allowed our, our workforce that comes out of the city um, to kind of get out of the toxic environment that they're in on a daily basis, whether that's about their parole officers or the, the cops or just the gang activity. Um, so we kind of... Each day we commute out to the farm and I'd like to think of us as like the most busted Benetton ad you've ever seen because we're all out there and it's like, uh, yeah, it's a very motley crew, but we're, uh, so we're farming and making cider together and that's the, that's about as cliff noty as I can get. That's awesome. So, um, obviously I think, you know, myself and listeners are kind of like, whoa, he just like totally did a lot of things really fast. Five years. What, uh. Like, what were you doing before you got into the cider business? Like, what were some of the pieces that got yeah. you kind of geared up to, one, pursue a passion for workforce development, to get engaged in agriculture, and then to decide that, like, you're going to take on the, like, right. legalese right. of being a, you know, a spirits uh, producer? Yeah, well, I have the very standard trajectory of becoming a farmer and cider maker, having been uh, first a lawyer and then a movie producer, and then uh, owned an ad agency and became a political consultant and was running for Congress. And uh, and how old are you? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but in my run, I did I do everything in very short little spurts and then get bored easily. But uh, no, so in it was simply being kind of very active in the political arena. Um, came to make a decision that uh, that wasn't really in service of the people I was interested in serving. And um, so this this idea of, of going to Newark and sort of, uh, say, taking a progressive agenda, but wrapping it up in a very populist activity and a mm-hmm. populist brand um, was something that I was really excited to do. So um, Cider just seemed to be the really this perfect vehicle that um, – People care where their food comes from. Obviously, we're sitting here, uh, and I think we know Roberta's and Blanca and, and Heritage Radio. I mean, is it, 
kind of all exists because of this notion that people care where their food comes from. People care who's making their food. Uh, people care what the ingredients are. If the majority of the cider industry, and um, I think we can, thanks again for kind of honoring the other piece of it than this, but if the majority of the cider is made from juice from concentrate from China uh, and Poland, um, really hard to say that that's in support of American farmers, American workers, um, even the American consumer. It's just more, you know, liquid, uh, liquid sugar <laughs> with booze in it. And uh, so, so to take something like cider and say, ah, oh, it actually should be about local sourcing, support of local farmers, um, and, you know, kind of made for and by Jersey is a sort of nice badge of honor. And so it was a perfect vehicle. And um, when I owned my ad agency, we had launched a number of brands like Mike's Hard Lemonade and Svedka Vodka. And uh, one thing I know on the branding side is that um, what people choose to drink is mostly about identity value. What does it say about me? Mm -hmm. uh, when I, It's usually about a guy at one end of the bar choosing what he's going to drink so that the girl at the other end of the bar thinks he's cool enough that maybe he can build up the courage <laughs> to go talk to her. So uh, I usually say that in a much more crude fashion, but I think we all know what locker I mean. Room uh, yeah, locker, locker room talk. Yeah, locker room talk. Locker room talk. Big <laughs> proponent of locker room talk. <laughs> Anyways. She boxes by yeah, the way. Yeah, good, good. So, uh, yeah, so, so that's, the, that's the impetus of saying, wow, well, we can actually create a brand that cares about this stuff. And, and also um, we can show that, you know, when we have support of the retail community and the restaurant community and, and uh, that, that this can actually be a viable business as opposed to just, you know, either a statement or just pursuing agriculture in a way that – you know, we think is right. Yeah. We also have it's to more prove more than a Benetton ad. Right. And we have to <laughs> prove that it's an economically viable model that we can actually treat people with dignity and respect. We can repair the damage to the earth and we can make money whilst doing so. So it's actually really great because my Republican friends are thrilled because it's not about, you know, entitlements and handouts. And my progressive friends are thrilled because we've, we're, we're talking about, you know, employing the most chronically underemployed members of the community. Um, and all of it is just business. So that's that's kind of what we're trying to achieve. Who says you're not still in politics? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Speaking of which, actually, I just wanted to to make a point. I don't know as much about about the laws in New Jersey, but it's interesting that you said that you know you wanted to to make a cider, but the but it required you to have a farm cidery license, which is the same in um, in New York State. And what that does is actually encourage people producing these products to support the regional agriculture of that of that state, which is a great thing. And that's a way that 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 um, you know, officials can actually help to encourage people like you to start these, yeah. these entities, which is a great thing. I think it's a it's a really important point because, again, you know, we, we always talk about the fact that we're sort of uh, building the plane and flying it at the same time because we don't really know Sounds what we're dangerous. doing about anything. <laughs> we're actually learning how to build a plane, then building it and flying it. But um, But this is a great point because... We realize as we talk about sourcing, as we talk about kind of building a network of growers, although we have our orchards, our, our intent is not to have all of our trees being used. We're going to, you know, growers all the way in Adams County, Pennsylvania, who are growing right now um, table apples and fruit apples for companies like Mott's and Arizona Iced Tea, and they're all living below the poverty line. They're not paid anything. So we've gone to these growers and said, look, we'll guarantee you four times what you're making in the market on growing, you know, juice apples, whatever that market rate is, and we'll give you the cider apples. So, uh, so we're helping provide a new viable revenue stream for them in a way that's still much more affordable 
for me instead of having to have all the land and, and caring for all of the trees. So it's about building a network that supports agriculture in the Northeast. And so we work with New York growers, we work with Pennsylvania growers, we work with New Jersey growers, all in this kind of collaborative way to say, well, here is a here is a an industry that that, you know, a few short years ago did not exist. And all of a sudden, we're a really key player in the agricultural movement in the tri-state area. So I want to get into some more of this. But I think, Sabine, we need to give folks a little bit more on you and your background. So, um, you know, Wassail is a, a lovely kind of cider-focused restaurant on the Lower East Side. But how did you kind of, what was your entree into kind of the cider world? Um, all the way back in 2010, I was working with an organization called Glenwood in Cold Spring, whose mission is to make farming thrive in the region. And they were noticing a lot of the orchards there, um, really struggling under development pressure. And as Charles has, you know, mentioned, pick your own and uh, trying to compete on the dessert fruit market with China and and, and even Washington State is. Uh, it's not a winning proposition. And so these, these orchards were folding. And um, so they, you know, figured out a way to support some of the um, orchards that were experimenting with some hard cider production and apple-based spirits. And they turned to historic uh, apple-growing regions in other parts of the country. And they fostered an exchange between these growers from Normandy who came over, you know, whose families have been, like, making Calvados and, and cider for, like, centuries and we were all kind of nervous, like, oh, my God, they're going to come to the, you know, meet these kids who are making cider for the first time. What could we possibly have to, you know, show them? But it became really illuminating for them as well, because, you know, they're they're weighed down by tradition there. And what what, um, you know, what what they really enjoyed about witnessing the, the birth of of uh, orchard based ciders in the Hudson Valley was the experimentation, the youthfulness, the freedom and so after that uh, way of continuing to build awareness and, and the market for the product, uh, Glenwood um, created an event called Cider Week, which is now in its seventh year, I think. Oh my God. Yeah, right. <laughs> Six or seven. <laughs> um, and will be taking place all over New York City starting on the 21st of this month and going through um, October 30th with tons of events happening all over the place. So. I produced that event for about four years and then uh, was crazy enough with my partners, Ben um, Sandler and Jennifer Lim, who owned the Queen's Keck Shop, to open Wasail because we felt that the market was ready for a place that was really focused and dedicated on on uh, on the, the kinds of orchards uh, and ciders that we that we championed. That you were like, excited about. And yeah. for folks who have not, who, who when they think about hard cider, haven't got beyond, um, you know, what you're maybe finding in your local deli case, which a lot of times it, I'm like totally blanking on the, the big angry orchard, angry orchard. Yeah. Um, and you're like, Oh, well that's like hard, hard cider is angry orchard or it's like or a Mike's hard yeah. lemonade or makes hard know, lemonade, like, or it's yeah. like a kind of like sweet beer alternative. I want to disabuse you of that. And Sabine, maybe you can just talk a little bit about what are some of the ways that cider tastes and looks in the glass so people can get a little bit of a sense of the scope of well we can start with the harrison apple um yeah, which is uh an apple that was found growing in new jersey many apples were just uh, you know uh pippins like wild trees that were growing and somebody was kind of smart enough to, to pick the fruit one day and go wow something cool is going on here um and I don't know that I've tasted one out of hand myself, but but I've heard that they are just like 
unbelievably dense in their flesh, incredibly juicy. Uh, they have, you know, they give off a lot of juice, so that's a good thing <laughs> if you're growing these apples. And they have this very like viscous, syrupy, almost quality. So that's why it was n- that ciders made from that particular apple were known as the champagne of ciders because they just fermented into something extraordinary. So, and to that point, it's it's really interesting. Um, so we we spent three years. Uh, you know, bringing the Harrison back to New Jersey. And it was named after a guy named Samuel Harrison, who was at the center of the Newark cider movement. Um, but when we've, so my, my partner, Cameron Stark, who's a really acclaimed winemaker, uh, was at Sinsky and Napa Valley and ran Unionville here in New Jersey and, um, a really rock star winemaker. I, to see him this excited over an apple mm-hmm. when we first tasted the Harrison, the acids and the tannins and the sugars, all of them off the charts. We've never seen an apple. And what's really tricky about cider and, and why the folks in Normandy are, are so good at making cider is it's, you know, an apple's not a grape. And um, grapes, which are the highest fruit on the on the uh, brick scale, sugar contents, it's acids and tannins. Um, a lot of ciders, if they're made from just sweet dessert apples, Mm -hmm. Sabine was referencing, or made from concentrate like Angry Orchard, um, you end up with that kind of syrupy, you know, cloyingly sweet It's one note. There's no depth. There's no complexity that comes from these cider apples like Harrison. And there are, you know, um, dozens and dozens of varieties that are fortunately uh, being found, preserved, grafted, um, you know, the Harrison, for example, Mm -hmm. which, which you have... Uh, now brought well. Tom Burford was yeah. the guy who found the apple. Um, For your and there listeners, was one they tree may not left. Yes. There was one tree left. Yeah. He found it, what? grafted it, and and was able to propagate uh, a number of trees that are now growing in Virginia at Albemarle and uh, Foggy Ridge yeah. ciders, um, who have planted a bunch of those trees. So it wasn't if it wasn't for this, you know, apple guy being interested in saving this one particular apple, there would be no Harrison. It and also, just he, he, you know, Tom's fifth generation orchardist and uh, uh, for your listeners they may not know him as Tom Burford but they probably know him as Professor Apple (laughs) (laughs) but Tom is this remarkable man uh, who has led the kind of restoration of the American apple Uh, in colonial era America there were 16,000 varieties of apples Um, we're down to a handful because they're the ones that are uh, prettiest when they ship and get to the the shelf right so very little to do with flavor or taste or interest Um, and so Tom Really, I would say almost single-handedly, but a number of other folks, um, Dan Boosie and and John Bunker, um, you know, other members of the Apple community. I can't even believe there's an Apple community all of a right. sudden. I'm like, wow. They're all known as Apple Whispers. Apple Whispers. And they're, they're all tough guys. But uh, but Tom's, Tom's goal wasn't only to preserve the Harrison and these other really important apples. His goal was to have the kind of re-proliferation, if that's a word, Mm -hmm. of them, right? So this idea that he didn't want to just kind of own it and keep it in Virginia. He wanted it desperately to come back here to New Jersey. Yeah, here, take it. You can have it. Have it, have it. Not a culture of like, this is mine and it's my business. Right. Well, so I think the cool thing about, so like cider in the glass can be uh, sweet and sparkling and sour and funky and dry and and still. And like it can, so saying that cider tastes like one thing is, is, you know, don't trust that person. Right. That person does not know about hard ciders. And one of the things I found so exciting about the cider conversation and tasting hard ciders is they it, it's like a microcosm of everything that's like working and not working in our food system 
in the Northeast, in America. So it's like a really great one-stop shop for learning about history and agriculture and biodiversity and um, the impact of government and the impact of small business owners. And it's like, there's so many stories. There's so much kind of cool stuff going on. And I guess what I want to talk to you guys about a little bit more today, because folks can find out a lot about, you know, we've done a ton of episodes on it. Come check out Cider Week stuff. Um, but you guys are sitting kind of with a very like finger on the pulse of like what's happening in the Apple industry. And both of you guys have mentioned in your kind of backstories that, uh, the cider market was the fastest growing market, you know, Charles or Sabine that like, we were ready for a cider bar. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about, that kind of like the, the, the business aspect of those things, like kind of like what's working, what's not working in that space. Cause just because something is a growing industry doesn't mean that like, it's going to be easy for anyone to step in there. So absolutely. And you know, I'll jump in here for a second and just, um, point out that those stats, um, are based on only the the largest commercial brands like Angry Orchard. So when when you know when all the information was tabulated, it wasn't coming from these small orchard based cideries that we tend to feature at Wasail. It was you know the Angry Orchards and the Woodshucks, uh, Woodshucks yeah. and the, and those those types of companies that that you know. Um, you know, ha- have a place in the market and um, they need to create, you know, for their customers, a shelf stable product that's going to be the same every single year. And that's why and they do it in massive volumes because, you know, cider is an agricultural product. After all, trees are biennial. I mean, there's a million things that if you are scaling up at that scale, mm-hmm. you have to it's no longer an agricultural product. It's, it's an industrial product. It gets it's it's made with a formula. It's made with concentrate. You know, um, so that is something important to keep in mind. So the, the actual growth of other cideries, that's more anecdotal. Like, obviously, I've been working with a lot of people in the Northeast for for many years and saw, you know, them expand. But recently, there's been also a lot of struggle and contraction because the, the, the market's flooded. So many people are, are getting into this game. Some people have been doing it for 30 years like Steve Wood and Louisa um, in Far- at Farnham Hill in New Hampshire. And then you have, um, you know, people who just come from the beer world and yeah. still think that cider is brewed and decide, you know, they're going to start a cidery because they have some marketing, you know, they've, they've got uh, a marketing angle about how right. they're going to market the product. So the, it, the, it, it's very flooded. But, you know, speaking to Ironbound, and I'd love to know a little bit more about where, where the juice and the apples come from. But you know, I'm in, I was intrigued f- about the marketing around this yeah. because it's it's really trying to tap you know into that that market of people who are used to maybe drinking the, this more like a beer. It's in a beer can, right? Um, but there's a real mission and and a you know there, there's legs behind this. So well, it's, it's, if if yeah. we can turn some yeah. of the beer stuff in, into this stuff, well, that's that would why be a cool thing. We're, we're actually and I'm going to drink one. So, mine Sabine right and I are <laughs> Sabine and I are actually almost at opposite ends of, of the industry. And, and I think what's critical is her work, uh, both with um, the festival as well as uh, the restaurant, um, are critically important at the kind of 
um, let's say, at the uber elite level of the, the same way that the food movement was critically important that without Blanca and Roberta's, we couldn't trickle down and have, I don't know, Chipotle, mm-hmm. right? Um, so you need the things at the at the top to kind of trickle down and permeate and then become kind of democratized, right, in food um, a lot. So to Sabine's point, you know, we had two very different ends of the spectrum. We had the juice from concentrate, angry orchard, woodchuck, you know, Crispin guys. And then we had these kind of really lovely artisanal craft players at the other end of the extreme. And we, we needed, so the industry kind of has those two things. What we decided to do at Ironbound, we said, okay, we are going to compete with the six pack beer guys. We are going to say, you know, we're taking a fresh pressed, locally sourced apple, no added sulfites, no added sugar, Right, but giving it the complexities of the acids and tannins that come from a fine cider, mm-hmm. but making it appealing to that Mike's Hard Lemonade Angry Orchard drinker. So there's a kind of sweetness and a fresh apple taste that kind of invites you in, but there's an arc to the to the drink. You can you can taste how it finishes, and it finishes that way because of the acids and tannins. So what we've done is we've made an insanely sessionable cider. You can drink this. All day. The other day, I was I, I was um, sitting in our in a in a Drink room at the farm. Like, well, that, yeah, yeah, right. That was the problem. <laughs> I'm, like, I, I'm like literally drinking it. Right. It's uh, ten thirty. <laughs> I, I got. I had my water bottle, and I was on my way to the kitchen at the farm to fill it up with water. And I'm like, well, I'm closer to the tank room, and I ended up filling my water bottle up with cider. And I was like, this is not a good That's way to start they, the day. They dry, uh, drank it in right, colonial days because exactly. water was not potable. So. Right. So so this idea that. We couldn't do what we're doing without the work that Sabine has done. But what we've decided is we're going to be in a six pack. We're price competitive with um, Angry Orchard. You know, for a six pack, we're eleven ninety nine. Um, you know, Sabine mentioned Farnham Hill. That's a very dry cider in a seven hundred and fifty milliliter cork bottle. So it's it. It better be pretty good for the average drinker to say, well, I'm not going to get a bottle of wine or an unbelievable Belgian beer to buy a 750 milliliter bottle of very dry kind of cider. So we are in a different space. You're like in a middle space. We are the middle. We're threading that needle. We're saying we're going head to head with the juice and concentrate guys. So like a lot of our ads are about, you know. Uh, because Angry Orchard's owned by the Boston Brewing Company, who makes Sam Adams, you know, one of our favorite lines is only a mass hole would make cider from concentrate. And, you know, uh, if our cider was made from concentrate, we'd be angry, too. Uh, you know, our goal is to get Jim Cook to sue us in our first six months. But uh, but that's Jim, that, if you're out there, right, yeah. bring yeah, it, bring, bring it. it. So that's at one end of the market. And then you have this kind of, you know, really and again, I think critically important, but kind of, you know, elite food movement at the other end. And uh, and we're trying to thread that needle. So, Sabine, when you kind of, you know, a, a, a business, a brand like Ironbound comes across your table, if I'm you, I am immediately suspicious. I'm immediately like have a couple of questions. I'm like, all right, prove your prove your like, you know, kudos to me. Like, and so what are the questions that like as a consumer who kind of cares about these things, like what, what do we ask? How do we evaluate choices if we're looking for something in this kind of, you know, middle space? Well, I mean, I'm not the buyer for the restaurant. Um, Dan Pucci, our extraordinary cider director is, um, so, you know, we, we leave a lot of those decisions up to him, but, but I think in general, you know, we don't want to, um, be, 
you know, narrow minded and just say, well, you know, we're only going to serve stuff that comes in 750 ml bottles because that's authentic. You know, uh, there's plenty of people who can put, you know, uh, maybe it's not from concentrate, but it, it's about, first of all, the quality um, of of the juice that you're that you're drinking. What does it taste like? That right. will tell you volumes. Right. And, you know, I can't say that I drink a ton of those, you know, um, other ciders, but from the, 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 the six pack style ciders, but, but from the ones I have drunk, they, they don't, they have, all it is is sweetness. All you taste is sugar and right. it, like, it's like sugar water. And this definitely has uh, a freshness and a complexity. Um, that's, that's unusual well, for well, those. Sabine actually mentioned this idea that, you know, there's a formulaic way to make cider. So the sweet ciders are make like Budweiser. Mm-hmm. Here's our formula. And every can of Budweiser is going to taste exactly the same. Every can of Angry Orchard is going to taste exactly the same. What we find is week by week, so we can every week. And every single week, our cider is it's different. It's a little bit different. Because it's like a wine. Right. Well, you so, have a winemaker. And that, we have a wine, And that's, that's the thing. That's a big difference. I don't, I don't yeah. think those right. guys have winemakers making their, their cider. Ciders. They probably have brewers. They have brewers. I mean, and, I don't know. And they have brewers at one end, or you have an orchardist, a farmer at the other, just fermenting apples. So I don't know any other cider in the country that's helmed by a winemaker. And um, so, but we like that there's, we, Ironbound always stays within kind of a spectrum, right? but we can't make it the same. If every week our juice is coming from a different farm or a collection it's of farms. It's not going to taste the same. It can't. And the same way that we wouldn't expect a wine to taste the same, a vintage of a wine, you might like a certain wine, but a 1992 bottle of it versus a 1994, they will taste differently. And um, so I think we're, we're again trying to add those kind of quality cues to mm-hmm. what we're doing, but again, sort of for the masses, right? So if we want to, you know, the, but if what, you can educate them that right. what's in this can is actually an agricultural product too, and not right. an industrial one, um, you know, and, and I think to the question of being inherently skeptical sometimes when you come across, um, you know, products like this that are advertising themselves, you just need to dig deep deeply into the, you know, visit the facility, talk yeah. to the owner, really figure out if, if what they're saying is, is so, the but also deal. the, the other thing is, you know, having bartenders, I, I went a bar just recently, um, put us on tap. And so I went to the bar just to kind of support them. And, and I saw it on tap. I didn't tell them who I was. And I asked the, the young bartender, I asked her, uh, Oh, what's that? And she said, Oh, it's a new cider. I said, how is it? She said, well, it's not very sweet. I said, Oh good. I hate sweet cider. She's like, okay, well let me give you a taste of it and see if you like it. So I had to like pull the cider from her because her only framing had been iron, uh, angry orchard. So, you know, I think your question's a great one, which is if people don't understand that there's this whole really interesting thing going on. You have a, if you have a pear cider from Eric Bordelais in, in Normandy, I don't think there's many drinks out there that are as delicious and as interesting and as complex. Um, so you can go all the way from that to a juice from concentrate thing. And it's weird. Nobody thinks about beer. Nobody goes to a beer festival and says, oh, I tried the Bud Light and then I tried some Belgian sour beer. And nobody, wine doesn't live in that one one dimensional, one space. dimensional like, space. Oh, I don't like cider. And right. I'm like, I don't think you know what cider is because right. it's a silly thing to say. It's like people who say they don't like cheese or they don't like, I'm just like, right. but there's 
But that so doesn't make any seasons. sense because <laughs> like there's like literally right. a million different ways that right. it can taste and textures and feels and pre- and preparations. At, yeah, and I'm like, and I've been uh, at cider. I've been at cider festivals where, and this is not an exaggeration. On the left of me is the Angry Orchard guys pouring, and on the right of me is Eden, this amazing. Oh, sm- I love Eleanor. You know, yeah. right? I know, so those- but hang on, Eden and. The cider maker for Angry Orchard, Ryan Burke, are working on a collaboration. So, well, yes. but that's not and, on Angry Orchard, though. That's on well, their upstate but, but, stuff. Well, but but Ryan is the cider maker for both. And and just to add another layer of complexity <laughs> to the never-ending complexity of cider and apples, which is why I think I'm still involved in yeah. this. Right, right. Lots to dig into. It's insane. Um, is that they have they were smart enough to hire a guy who really understands and cares passionately about the things that Charles is talking about, about cider apples, about complexity. At the same time, he realizes that, you know, there is a, an audience in a market that wants the, 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 the stuff that Angry Orchard is making, but they, they do have an, an orchard up in, uh, it's upstate. Maybe. Yeah. But I'm trying to remember the town. I can't remember it. Um, and in it is a, is, is an extraordinary laboratory where, um, Ryan is making some really fascinating and, and amazing ciders with spontaneous fermentation age, like some really complex stuff that is diametrically opposite to what the company, company is putting thing. out there. Absolutely. So it's uh, so I want to ask because you know I'm, I'm I'm like bummed. We need like another hour here, but I want to ask because we have you, Charles. So on the can it says, <clears throat> you know, made from fresh pressed American apples. In, in a big bright box, it says not from concentrate. Um, you know, one of the things that I think super challenging for consumers, uh, especially people who are trying to make like responsible purchasing decisions about anything that they buy, is that so much of the language of the quote unquote like good food movement has been kind of greenwashed. And there's yeah. all these terms out there that you're kind of like, well, shit, I don't know. Like, I thought that meant that I was, like, okay to buy this, but now I'm hearing yeah. in the news I'm not okay to buy yeah. this. And so you, you know, you guys have put these uh, this information on your can. Who says that you can do that? And who's verifying that your apples are indeed fresh and that they are indeed American? Like, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, and sadly, having a background in marketing, I know all too well what a badge, like... Uh, Organic or all natural, or you know, uh, free trade, all fair trade, um, all of these um, marketing uh, logos are really just that. And um, so we actually said, okay, well, we are helping growers. So I worked for a long time, fifteen, almost twenty years with Ben and Jerry's, and Ben Cohen of Ben and Jerry's um, helping form the St. Al- Albans Creamery Co-op and taking RBGH growth hormones out of dairy. Right. He did that single-handedly for the country. He did it through a business contract with those growers. He said, "If you grow milk, if you grow cows." For our milk, this way, we'll guarantee you a certain price, regardless of what's happening to milk around the country. Right? So bold move, because milk, milk markets are insane. Right. And so Ben... So did you use him as a model? For always, your, yeah. Well, uh, because he was, to me, the, the pioneer of social hmm. enterprise. Right? So I'm saying, our goal isn't to, to sell people on this notion. Our goal is to actually support growers and support workers. And so we even debated how much of that we even put on our can. Sure. But interestingly, we just... 
uh, our cans, we just put in a new order for cans with our can company, Ball, um, and we actually changed the word American to local. So where it says fresh-pressed American apples, we say fresh-pressed local apples. And we had to really debate, well, does Pennsylvania count as local? Um, and uh, and But we wanted to make sure that people knew that we weren't talking about apples from Washington State, because as Sabine said, that's... It's a different dang- industry. It's a different industry. So we're holding ourselves accountable, but we're also proving that you can be a commercially viable orchard and be engaged in regenerative organic agriculture. So we bring other growers to our orchards and say, look, you can actually grow a high density planting and still be engaged in regenerative agriculture. And you don't need to grow an apple that has to be picked with gloves on because chances are that's not a very good thing for our kids to be eating. So, (laughs) uh, you know, all of what we're doing is just proving a business model. So my marketing background has been helpful to say, oh, we know what hooks we have to put on there. Right. But the reality is we're going so past that just in terms of what we think is a viable, sustainable business practice. But can I ask you just when you say regenerative agriculture, is it what you're practicing on your on the farm that you bought on your orchard yeah. or are you demanding? You well, know, that's why we don't making- have that on the can. So when I say to a grower in Adams County, we'll give you, you know, we take trees out of our orchard, out of our nurseries and we'll say, here's fifty thousand dollars worth of Harrison's. Right. If you grow them this way, we will buy our, them. We will buy. Here's the trees. You tend them, we will buy the apples at four times what you're making for those juice prices. So we don't have enough growers in that place, so we buy juice from, you, you, again, we had mentioned Steve Wood. He's in New Hampshire. Steve's a conventional grower. We, we applaud the way that he grows, and we applaud his um, the varieties that he has, but he's not an organic grower. He's no, not a regenerative but, but, grower. But I wouldn't. But he's a careful grower. He's very careful, right. and he's a, he's a leader in the field of IPM. Right. So, and right. people, so that's why I wouldn't want to dismiss him. And right. people can go back. I've had Steve on the show, and there's, uh, I think, I think a couple, I think we've had him on a handful of times, so there's like some good episodes in the archive for folks who want to tuck in. But I just want to clarify, again, like, you can put whatever you want on the can. You can write American. You can write local. Yeah. It, it, nobody is, nobody is, that's like not verified by anyone. That's not a thing, well, right? We're, we're, FDA, just like, we're FDA regulated because cider doesn't have the lobby that beer does. Yet. So, yet. yet. Well, so, <laughs> you know, we in New Jersey, were produced like a wine, we're distributed like a beer, and we're, we're regulated like a food product. So I have a lot of, and having formerly incarcerated of, men and women, yeah, also lots of hoops. Department of Labor hoops. But the reality is, you can say all natural on a, a, a compound, on a flavoring compound yeah. that um, was made chemically, but because it has the same compound chemical compound is a natural product you can call it that so yeah there's a lot of um yeah there's leeway. a lot of there's a lot of leeway there's a lot of space and that's not like a critique or a criticism of you i think it's uh it's just kind of a reflection of you know there's so many things working against you as a consu- against you just like trusting your own mm. senses as a consumer like you open a can of something, you bite into something. You were like, there's a lot of information, Sabine, you were saying in just the taste. It, it, it gives you a lot of information. Um, and I think that's like a really great place to start is just with your senses. Is this good? Is it complex? Does it, does it like ring correct on my palate? Uh, you know, my milk says it's expired, but it tastes fine. That's fine. <laughs> but like there's all this like information that's kind of like pushing us away from just like engaging with like the thing that's actually directly in front of us. And what's cool about I think what you're doing, Charles, um, 
Well, I think there's a lot of things that are cool about what you're doing. But, you know, you're here on the Heritage Radio Network and you're like, yeah, here's where we're at. This is what we're working on. I think the middle space in agriculture is something that we don't in the media do a great job talking about because it's complicated. And we've decided we've decided that food has to be accessible to the people. Right. So we have five acres at our farm that are just grown produce for our Newark workers and their families and people that come to the farm. And it's all organically produced food because we think people actually need access to food and real food, like with a capital F. And as we address issues of the food deserts in in cities like Newark, um, we have to think about viable ways of getting that food to them. So if you have, let's say, an effort like a vertical farm, like Arrow's Farm, that's only taking advantage of Newark ta- New Jersey tax credits but growing microgreens for the New York market, we don't consider that a viable play in support of getting food to the people. Ooh, shots fired. Big shots fired. Shots right? fired. <laughs> and big shots because we don't, we don't applaud – well – if the mission is about either getting food or jobs or an understanding to vast communities that don't have access to food, um, we think that that sustainable agriculture has to take that on. We don't think you can feed a planet of 9 billion people in monoculture the way that Monsanto's telling us. So put aside, you know, how well our cider's doing. We think we actually have a model to prove to growers to say, look, you can be much more financially secure if you grow food this way, not this way. So it's kind of both a macro goal and a micro goal at the same time. We're proving that you can actually grow really good food for less money. Uh, this way, and so hopefully that trickles down to the people. Yeah, I, I was going to add that when I drink a cider, when it comes to you know advertising and what I believe and don't believe, I the reason I really le- gravitate towards um, the kinds of ciders made from estate grown fruit, meaning that the people making the beverage have been growing the apples for a long time, is that you know they they have an intimate knowledge of of the growing practices and and the flavor of each apple and there's there's a real quality just inherent in in, in what they're doing so I tend to enjoy those call me elitist no. <laughs> more elitist style um, <laughs> ciders but still priced I think relative to you know to wine and even some um, of the higher end craft beers very competitively given how hard it is to grow apples especially in the northeast Uh, but you know when it comes to these um people trying to compete in the six can you know six pack market i don't know really of any who you know most of them are just like yeah i'm gonna figure out you know how to, I'm going to make some money. Make some I'm going to like, and it's the like, fastest we, growing segment. I'm going to get a piece of that. We have an in, event yeah. during Cider Week yeah. called So You Want to Start a Cidery, which is like it sells out and it's selling out again. Like it's 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 yeah. people, you know, are, want to figure out how to tap into this. So to have somebody with with your business background, with your expertise, yes, with your marketing skill, that's important. But but also with doing mission driven work, Um you know, I find really interesting. So. But, you know, there's, again, I, I pointed, and I think it's really important to note that what Sabine's doing at, at her end of the of the market is Nebo. critically, yeah. well, it's critically important because, A, that funds a grower that's charging $25 a bushel for his I wish it did. Unfortunately, we have too many ciders to really right. impact, like, a particular, but, it's not like we're selling volumes of, you know, 
one thing on tap. We have no, twelve sh- taps, and right. but it shows a lot of quality. Bottles. It shows that quality yeah. matters. It shows that you know. Uh, being, and we educate. People are coming right. in knowing only. Yeah. And, right. and you know, the, our staff and Dan in particular, right. they have so much fun. You know. Um, exposing people because they're they're they are kind of open still in yeah. a way they the people saying i don't like cider aren't going to walk into a cider bar so already you got to assume there's an openness there yeah. yeah and then it's like anything is possible you know yeah. so That's we just take, take them on a journey what do you like wine you know white wine red wine do you like beer what kind of beer and then we just zero in on something and it's a fun process of discovery for them guys the we are out of oh, time oh no i know i'm sorry i one of the things i think and i want to give kudos to you both is that, um, you know, both of your businesses are doing lots of different types of work. Um, and it's, it's really cool. And I would encourage listeners out there, um, check them out, uh, with sale. Um, if you're here in New York city, uh, also their website's a great resource to kind of highlight interesting stuff happening in the cider space. Obviously lots of events coming up for cider week, NYC, check that out. And then ironbound cider, Uh, get it in a six pack drink it all day we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor and then we'll be back with the escape maker segment this week we're going to hear um we're saying the in the in the alcoholic range we have brian from prohibition distillery coming up um so hang tight for that we'll be right back And this one is called Basilica by the Hollows. We'll be right back. Log on to escapemaker.com for more ideas on local weekend getaways and day trips to orchards, farms, wineries, breweries, and more. Or come by Escape Maker's Blue Tent and Grow NYC's Green Markets and pick up a guide to local agritourism escapes to the Green Market's own farmers and producers. Have you listened to On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio? Escape Maker has teamed up with Heritage Radio to design a vacation package that provides a first-hand experience of the local flavors from some of New York's best craft beverage producers. Listen in and book your trip at escapemaker.com slash heritage radio. No car? No problem. Escape Maker features plenty of ideas for car-free getaways, including discounts via Amtrak. Get out of the city and explore. We're also supporting your local farmers. Log on to escapemaker.com now to get inspired and make your escape through the net. So when I meet St. Peter, I don't let you down. All right, welcome back. So now, of course, it is time for the escape maker segment and today we're taking a little trip up to the Catskills. We are on the line with the head of Prohibition Distillery, Brian Fakiu. Brian, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Um, so I um, am really excited to learn a little bit more about your guys' work. Now you are up in Roscoe, New York, so it's about two hours north of the city. You guys are distilling vodka, gin, and bourbon. You've been um, kind of on the 
Fine Spirits world since about 2009. How did you get into the distilling business? I mean, were you just like uh, a big MASH fan growing up or? Well, I, it was back when we started, it, there really was no, no one was really thinking of craft spirits. Um, you know, there was some success with Tuttletown and Hudson Bourbon. And, you know, we, uh, we kind of went in with vodka at a time. You know, so for us, it was, I just wanted to build something that was going to be lasting for my family. And I thought the idea of making things for other people, for some reason, I thought I could do it. And well, so a lot of kind of cocktail aficionados and, and folks in the spirits world have a little bit of a tendency to be a, a bit snotty around vodka, but I feel like you have kind of the opposite opinion. Why is that? Well, you know, when we started, all I had, all I had was vodka. Um, I liked vodka. I, I still love all the other spirits, you know, don't get me wrong. But when we were doing it, you know, you know a lot of distilleries look at vodka as something they've got to make so that they can get to their gins and whiskeys. And for us, that was our focus. You know, so to me, making something odorless, colorless, while still having flavor that is not offensively harsh, it's really an art form. And um, I, thankfully, we, we had enough time to, to learn that. And we made, and I think we perfected it, um, you know, see by all the different metals and, and what people think of our spirits now. You know, when you see our gins and our bourbons, they have... There are a lot of refinement to it that um, I don't think we would have ever gotten had we not stayed focused on vodka for so long. Yeah, I feel like one of the interesting things about a vodka is there's really nowhere to hide. But speaking of kind of that experimentation, I know you guys worked for several years when you were developing your approach to gin. And I'm so curious, what happened to like the gin batches that you're like, nah, this isn't quite right? Um, like, do you brew or do you distill in kind of smaller batches at the experimental stage? And then, no, like, no, I'm 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 kind of a freak with this. Uh, it's a freak, freak. It's freaky, at least. What I did, I I made, you know, I didn't make my. It took me so long to make gin because gin is so personal to you. Mm-hmm. So and it's a it's really a representation of your palate. Not, you know, like, whereas bourbon, you just throw it in a barrel and you let the barrel do its work. Vodka, you got to clean it, but gin is just, just pure representation of you. Um, so what I did is I just would put little bottles of vodka and put a couple of different botanicals, in, or I'd chew on botanicals. I did that for about a year and a half. And then one day, um, I just went and picked five botanicals, took 300 gallons. I did a 300-gallon batch oh my for the first batch. And uh, what you taste today with bootleg or gin was one batch, one time, one recipe, and uh, it's crazy is that it, it, I never distilled the gin before the gin that became a recipe, which has now, you know, we won the International Gulf Contemporary Gin, it's official gin of the Four Seasons Hotel, and um, last week we won double golds at both the New York State Fair and the I think it was a wine and grape foundation. So we're doing something right with it. So you went from be like being the guy walking around town with juniper berries stuck in your teeth to, you know, producing uh, 300 gallons of gin. And you're like, yeah, we got it right out the gate. That is amazing. Um, well, yeah. tell me about Pearl. About, I'm sorry, I couldn't hear for a second. Pearl. Pearl, your, your uh, 1,200 gallon pot. Oh, huh. <laughs> oh, Pearl! I'm talking about. I'm like, why are we talking about my grandmother? Um, oh yeah, well, we see, there we a, go. Uh, we, we named we. Everybody names their stills, and I named mine uh, Pearl and Rosemary. I've got a 1,200 gallon pot still. My grandmother Pearl was warm and welcoming, and she was a big lady. We're from New Orleans originally, and 
And uh, it just reminded me. And the other one is fiery, and it's my finishing spill. That's rosemary. She used to love to drink and cuss and just have a good time. And so, uh, yeah, my my stills are named Pearl and Rosemary. But I got a 1,200-gallon uh, stainless and copper high, um, pot still for my strip, and I've got a 300-gallon hybrid that's connected to a whiskey column, a 20-plate vodka column. So she's fiery and puts off a lot of uh, testy, and but she seems to put off a lot of good things just like she did. So, I mean, for for someone who doesn't drink, you know, gin or bourbon or vodka by the gallon yet, uh, you know, 1,200 gallons sounds like a big um, production. But give us a sense of, like, where you guys sit. Are, are you really, like, a, a small a small batch producer, medium, large? Like, how do you oh, kind of we're, fit? We're tiny, uh, tiny, because the 1,200 gallon is our finishing still. When you go through and use, that's, that's what feeds our 300-gallon uh, finishing still. The 300 gallons will produce about 80 gallons or so of, of, of barrel whiskey. Um, you know, so it's not, we, we are, it's a big still compared to other guys. Mm-hmm. But in the world of spirits, you know, if I'm making whiskey, I'm getting 80 gallons, 200 gallons off the still, which is tiny, you right. know, in the, in the world of production, considering... You know, people with continuous stills can get thousands of gallons off a day. You know, so we're 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 just uh, what it's done is the bigger still we've had has lent to more consistency across things because when we make a batch, the batch is you know for gin would be a 300 gallon batch which yields about 165 gallons. Um, so we have more than the guys that are doing them in 20-gallon batches, you know, so we have more consistency through each batch. Right. So that's that like, makes sense. Yeah, no, and, like, that's the right size for you guys for right now. Well, I'm curious, you know, we are located, obviously, in New York State. Are there things um, about being a distiller in New York State that make it uh, easier or harder for you um, at, when you're There's, thinking about what to produce and how much to produce and how to get it around and all the factors that you have to deal with as a spirits producer? Well, you just hit on the nail. There's so many factors that, that you know, New York State is wonderful um, in its promotion of, of craft spirits. They, you couldn't ask for better better government uh, from that standpoint. You know, but the challenge is with, with the lower cost to get a distilling license. Now, when we started this, there were maybe 15 brands total from New York. Now there are, I think the last counting, there's 150 distilleries. Wow. And the issue that you're going to have is that, you know, the craft spirit space, there's not enough shelf space for the New York ones, let alone the 1,500 across the country. So I think what you're going to see is the the shrinking of the market in a hyper-locality. Because what we're starting to see is when I go into places, people go, oh, you're from the Catskills? Well, we've, we support only things within, like, three miles. You know, like, I think that's being over-exaggeration, but that right. really is what's happening. Right. Um, so it's it's... It's an interesting thing. It's a beautiful thing. There's so many great producers in New York, um, as well as around the country. But the issue we're going to have is where are we going to sell these things? Because there's not enough room on the shelf space. Because there's companies like you know big guys that are out there that are that's their that's their world and they're letting us be in it. But how um, for how long? You know. Sure. So kind of like similar to the conversation we have around like food and food production is kind of thinking about what your values are and, and how to kind of make purchasing decisions based on that. Um, for folks who kind of want to learn more uh, and get your products, obviously they can visit the 
uh, it's just prohibitiondistillery.com um, and learn more about your stuff and where to find your gin or your vodka or, or the bourbon. But folks can come and visit too, right? Yeah, we have a tasting room. It's open seven days a week. I don't charge for any taste. Um, something about our brand when you come to the distillery, the back of the bottle is a poppy flower, which is a flower of remembrance for fallen sailors and soldiers. And we're, you know, several of us in the company are active duty. I'm, I'm, um, I'm a veteran. What we do is we, we give the tastings at donation. So when you come in, you can try anything you want, you know, learn about our spirits. We're very detailed with it, but we want you to at the end of it, you just put money into the bucket, and that goes 100% back to a couple of foundations for, for our, to help people's families who have died in battle. And the uh, and tours happen every day, and you spend an hour with us on a tour. You get a free glass and all that fun stuff. But, but we really just want people to come, see what we do, and take it home with them. Awesome. Well, we obviously Great. got linked up with you guys through Escape Maker, and EscapeMaker.com does, like, really wonderful kind of packages if you're interested in going and visiting a place like Prohibition Distillery, but also want to know like, hey, where do I spend the night and where do I go for dinner? They're, they're a great resource for that. I love that you guys are sure. actually like that linkage act to kind of the service um, is is really baked into your actual location. You guys are producing the spirits out of an old firehouse and then it was a VFW hall. Is that right? Yeah, we we uh, we actually have an old firehouse in DFW. We restored basically half a block so far. We just we're just about to pick up another building. Um, but the idea, uh, Popular Mechanics did a study, story on it, is that you, you can you can rebuild small towns and you can make a difference. And the reason why I I live down towards the city, I live down in actually Hoboken. I commute back and forth because I'm making a difference to an entire region. Not just having a cool brand, but I'm I'm employing local people, and you know people like Escape Maker bringing people up to the area and exposing it. So our area is starting to regrow, and that's exactly what America needs. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's small business builds community, and you know we're hoping that you guys will come join ours. Um, well, I don't think there's anything I can add to that, uh, Brian. Thank you so much. I'm excited to get out there and taste some of your spirits and definitely like i said folks it's called prohibition distillery learn more follow them um find out everything you need to know prohibitiondistillery.com thank you so much and thank you and thank your escape maker for just bringing awareness to our, our neck of the woods we really appreciate it yeah so do we uh awesome group well that my friends uh brings us to the end uh, you have made it through another episode of the farm report thank you so much for staying tuned in to everything we do here at the heritage radio network we are of course a nonprofit radio station so if you like what you hear visit our website click that donate tab become a member today um, but also Puts around on the website. Check it out. We've got over 30 live weekly shows. If you want to hear more about the spirits world, if we whet your appetite a little bit today, I'd point you towards the speakeasy, towards beer sessions, radio, towards um, in the drink with Joe Campanelli and ferment about it. Lots of great spirits coverage on the network. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.